Reach Young Adult Ministry Sermons online from Tuesday, May 5th, 2020 by Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, entitled The Good Life from James chapter 1. got your Bibles, turn over to James chapter 1. James, if you guys have not read James before, it is uh, the most practical uh, 101 text in the New Testament. In fact, I believe it's the, it's the best 101 text in all of the Bible. Um, James is, if you remember, he is the half-brother of Jesus. Why is he the half-brother? Because um, he is the son of Mary and Joseph. Uh, Jesus was only the son of Mary. Um, and he is, uh, when Peter and all the other apostles were uh, dispersing and going around the world sharing the gospel, um, he was, he was uh, assigned to be the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. So you can imagine James uh, was a very prominent figure in the, in the first century church. And um, this is the first lesson in a series of lessons going through the book of James. We're going to look at how uh, these trials in everyday life, the practical parts of life, how God uses them to transform us, and what that looks like. In, uh, in the book of Galatians, uh, the, the Apostle Paul, he says this in Galatians 5.17, he says, For the flesh desires what's against the spirit, and the spirit desires what's against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. In other words, he highlights that there's this battle between our everyday regular lives and the life that God has meant for us to live as children of God. And so this this push and pull, this back and forth is a is is a constant struggle that we deal with. Uh, one of the things that is that we'll see today in James chapter 1 is that God is the source of everything that's good. He is the source of everything that's right in the world. And to be separate from him is the exact opposite of life. It's the exact opposite of good. It's everything is evil and bad and destructive. Okay? So if you think about the analogy of of a fish out of water, right? A fish is meant to be in water. You take it out of water, there's a lot of there's a lot of activity, right? If you've ever been fishing, you throw a fish in the boat, it flips around, flops around. But the truth is the longer it's outside of the water, it's gonna die. The same is true for us. We are made to be with God. And that's why the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The byproduct of a sinful life is death. And to be separated from God is to be, is to be sentenced to a life of death. Okay, Just by the sheer fact of being separate from Him because He is the source of life. Okay, So for us though, as children of God, we, we live in kind of a, a transitional world. Okay, So we were once dead in our sin and... We have been redeemed through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus' sacrifice, but God hasn't come back yet to make everything right. And so we live in this, this back and forth place where we, we see spiritual things, but we also deal with the struggles of being fallen, fallen creatures. And the grace of Christ, it covers all of our sins. But in the meantime, we've got to live these lives that are they're pseudo-spiritual. They're not, they're not fully redeemed. They're not fully sinful, but we're kind of stuck in the middle. And so the, the first chapter of James, he highlights what it means to live under that tension, under that, under that uh, oppression of, of living a sinful life uh, or living in a sinful world. And so he says in the process, we actually, 
we rejoice because God uses that natural tension in us to show us, number one, His grace, but also He uses that to teach us how to walk more closely with Him and rely on Him. And He begins to clear away the cloud, the cloudiness of living with physical eyes, and He begins to show us clearly how to see the world and how to see life with spiritual eyes. Uh, a good friend of mine refers to this as putting on your God goggles so you can see the world as it truly is. And so part of that is that God marks us with a stamp. And in, in the first chapter of James, we'll see here in just a minute, that stamp, that, that, that symbol of royalty that we carry around as we pursue Christ and as we count it joyfully as we go through these trials, that stamp, that, that, that mark of, of royalty is referred to as a crown of life. This is a something that people look at and they see that we are different. They see that we have something that they don't have. For a sinful person, they see that God is doing something in us and we are unique and we're something different. So we're going to start in uh, James chapter 1. We're going to read the first several verses here and then we're going to start breaking this down. There's a lot to cover here in chapter 1. I'm going to do the best I can to... Uh, to be timely in how we go through this, um, but uh, this is really good stuff. So, beginning in, in verse chapter one, verse one, chapter one, uh, we're going to read the first uh, eleven verses, and then we'll we'll dig into it. So, it says this: It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it a joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and unbegrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances boasts in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with a scorching wind, dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while, he, while pursuing his activities. Okay, the first thing that I want you to see here is that trials bring perspective and transformation. Okay, so Jesus, when he was here on earth, he said that we were going to have trouble. It was guaranteed that we would have trouble, that there was going to be this natural tension between us and the world, that, that there are going to be people that hate us because we have his mark on us. We bear his image. And so he said, because of that, there's going to be tension. But the thing about this is that not only would we be hated by others, but there also would be a constant battle that would never end. Okay, so, so James is saying, he's saying, we're supposed to count it all joy. We're supposed to be joyful when we go through this suffering, this tension within our world. But I want you to consider something. Why would God not just remove us from this broken world? Okay, so say you trust in him, you become a redeemed child of God. Why would he, why would he make us sit here and suffer and have to, have to go through all of this? Why wouldn't he just pull us out? You know, but, but the truth is that... He, the reason why is that for a couple of reasons. The first is that we can see God move in everyday situations because of this. Okay, we are an example to those who don't have, don't know Him, and don't have Him. Also, 
God allows us to be partners in his story. If he was just to pull us out of the world after we trust in him, then he is, he is not allowing us to be part of what he's doing as he redeems creation. See, God, God he cares more about our choice, our ability to choose, than he does about pulling us out and saving us from the discomfort of going through a trial. So consider this, right? So you have Adam and Eve in the garden, and you have all of these great trees that they can eat from, and then you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we know it by that name, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the truth is that the way that God's word is written in Genesis, that's a description of the consequences of that tree. The tree in and of itself, we know that God is good, the tree in and of itself is nothing evil. There's nothing evil about it. But the thing that made it so profound is that God said, you can't eat from this tree because as soon as you do, you will have the knowledge of good and evil. You see, up until they ate the fruit, Adam and Eve didn't have any concept of evil. They didn't have any concept of conviction. They were pure. And yet, the minute that they took a bite out of that fruit, for the first time in creation, a human being knew what it was to be evil, to be rejected, to be separated from God because they had disobeyed. So the knowledge of good and evil is, is, is a description. So why would God even put that tree in there in the first place? Because God wants us to have a choice. He always wants us to have a choice. Our ability to choose is more important to him than denying us that choice. He doesn't just want robots. He wants, he wants a creation that chooses him in spite of the difficulties of our lives to, to, to participate with him in what he has called us to do. You see, we celebrate when we experience trials because it means that God is using us. It means that he's chosen us to be part of his story, to redeem us, to show us show us off to the world. See, we, we celebrate that. But what's interesting here, look at what it says about what we're supposed to do. <laughs> Excuse me. It says that we're supposed to consider a joy when we experience various trials. Verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. We have to be patient for, for, for God to work in our lives. We can't just expect him to come in and just relieve us of the tension because he uses the tension to draw us closer to him. Okay, But, but he says when we go through this, these trials and we, we, we have a joyful attitude about them, that, that seems kind of counterintuitive. Why would I be so excited about going through trials? Because in the end, we have confidence, we have faith. We, we looked a few weeks ago in, in Romans where it says that the faith, the faith that we have produces hope. And this hope is real, it's tangible. These are memories that we have that are sincere. Okay, so for us, what that means is that when we see challenges ahead of us because of the track record behind us, we can then look at our present situation and we can be joyful because we know because of past experiences that God is going to show up. So we get excited to see, oh my goodness, I cannot wait to see what God does. It's like a kid on Christmas morning, right? Instead of seeing all these Christmas presents in front of us, we see all of these trials ahead of us. And we're like, oh my goodness, every single one of these has something nasty in it. I am so excited to open this because that means that God is going to show me something incredible about who he is. So taking that confidence, we then ask in faith, okay, God, I'm in this situation. I don't know what to do. This is not pleasant. So we pray for something. What's interesting here is that we don't pray for patience. 
We don't pray for security. We don't pray for comfort. We don't pray for safety. Instead, he tells us to pray for something else. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. See, we're confident because we are we're, have a transformed mind, right? We're looking at, at Romans 12 uh, throughout this year about being uh, having a transformed mind and living transformed and not being confined and conformed to the world, but being uh, one with God's will. See, this is what a transformed mind does. A transformed mind is a wise mind. This is not a surprise, okay? So, so it's expected that God's going to give us opportunities to learn about Him. So for a transformed person, someone who is living out Romans 12, 1 and 2, they see, oh my goodness, this is the only thing that's missing here is I need more information. God, the situation is what it is. You're going to show up and do your thing. I know that's guaranteed, so help me see it with your eyes. Let me put on my God goggles to be able to see what is true here. So we pray for wisdom so that we have the right perspective. Okay, so we can count it joyfully because we know God's going to show up. We can count it joyfully because we know God is going to do something and relieve us of the situation. He's going to teach us something new about himself. We can be confident and pray for wisdom because all that we're missing is the perspective to see what God is doing. Okay, so he talks about though, he talks about a double-minded man. Look at what it says here about a double-minded man. It says, But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. Okay, so he paints this picture of this person. So a double-minded person is a person who they, 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 they can't really make God's provision their security because, either because they are, they're not mature in their faith, they haven't seen God move in serious ways, they have, don't have the perspective or the track record to be able to see him move, but they see that other believers are saying you need to pray about things first before you do them. So they pray. But what they don't understand, though, is that they pray and then they go, they, they don't, they're not necessarily asking for an answer. They're just checking a box because other people told them to pray. And so they go back and they try to fix it themselves. See, a person who can't make God's provision their security will pray for God's help, but they won't receive any divine help because they don't actually believe that God will help them either because of ignorance. Remember, we're all ignorant about things. There's things that we don't know. There's nothing wrong with that. We just don't know about them. Ignorance is, there's nothing wrong with it. But, but they don't actually see God move because they don't actually believe that he will show up. They're just checking a box to say that they've completed it, and then they're on to doing whatever they want. Okay, for us, for children of God, though, the only safe place is on the altar because the altar is the only place where God will distribute God-sized answers. So you can't, you can't go into a trial and say, okay, trial's happening. This really is unpleasant. God, I need your help. Okay, that's great. God, please help me. And then all of a sudden, you take God and you set him over here and you go try to fix it yourself. It doesn't work that way. He's saying you can't be double-minded because God will not answer your prayers. Think about it this way. God answers prayers when you are focused on him. If you're focused on the answer first and not on him, He's not going to answer your prayer because you're not paying attention to the right thing. You're not paying attention to the source. The, the, the challenge is not the problem. The obstacle is not the problem. The trial is not the problem. Your perception, what you're looking at is the problem. God wants you to be looking at Him. 
you're looking at him, if you're trusting in him, and you're focused, laser focused on him, Lord, show me what you want. I don't care about my security. I don't care about my safety. I don't care about any of these things. I want what you want. Please give me wisdom to see this so I can be obedient. And in the process, what happens is that humility, God then takes, he distributes an answer. And and here in verses 9 through 11, what happens is God takes that humble heart and he lifts it up and he exalts it to the world. Look Look at what verse 9 says. It says, Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Let me break that down a little bit. So he says, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. What this means is that a child of God sees their dependence on God as the source of their confidence. Okay, so he says, let the humble brother boast or take pride in God exalting him. In other words, let this be the thing that drives you. Let this be the singular thing that you get your you really get your drive from. Okay, God is lifting you up because you're humble. Remember, we've, we've talked about this before. Later on, we'll get to it in James chapter 4. He says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God loves humble people. And the reason why is because humble people truly reflect their master. So the humble one will be the ones who God, who, who's exalted in God's eyes, okay? In our temporary world, the proud, they dominate the spotlight, right? They throw, they throw fists, they throw elbows, they get what they want, but in God's eyes, it's the humble ones who will be lifted up. Remember, here on earth, everything is upside down. The humble are the ones that God exalts. The proud are the ones that he brings low. See, the humble area is also the, they're, they're also the one, the only ones who will build anything that will last because they build for the master. So a humble person is the one who builds on the rock. The foolish person is the one who builds their house on the sand. Okay, we build our lives reflecting God because the only thing that's going to last for eternity is what God ordains to stand. So the the process of transformation, all of this comes down to faith. It requires faith. See, God is going to allow trials into our lives, okay? And the only way we will grow is if we lay down control of the situation and let him guide us, okay? But we can't just expect to pray and then ignore him. That doesn't work that way. The whole point of the trial is to teach us to look at him. The obstacle isn't the problem. Our ignorance and pride are the problem, okay? So God uses these things to humble us and bring us back around to where we're looking at the right thing. We have to have a humble a heart and, a, and humble ourselves to ask God to show us how to look at our situations. See, he will not answer our prayers until we humbly see our problems from his perspective. Okay, remember this. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. God-sized solutions only come with a God-sized viewpoint. God-sized solutions only come with a God-sized viewpoint. See, we celebrate our trials because God has given us the ultimate gift. And that gift is the opportunity to see the world like He does. And for Him to lift us up and display us to a broken world that's determined to let their pride kill them. We have an incredible opportunity, not just to go through trials with a smile on our face, 
But we have the opportunity to see the world like God sees it. That's profound. That's why we can count it all joy because everything that we go through, he has taken one other little thing out of our line of sight, one more speck off of our glasses so that we can see the world as he sees it. And in the process, we begin to respond in a way that is holy and acceptable. And God uses that. That is the beginning of transformation. Okay, so so at first, the trials bring perspective, right? And they begin to transform us. Well, the second thing that happens is they bring life. Okay, so we're going through these trials where we've, we've prayed for perspective. Okay, Lord, help me see this right. Help me see this correctly. Okay, so we begin by asking for the proper perspective. We get wisdom. Okay, then we move into the results. The results of a proper perspective, and that's life. Okay, look at what happens in verses 12 through 20. So uh, in verse 12, it says this. It says, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. So this crown of life thing, I want you to think about this. This is the Greek word stephanos. Okay, stephanos it literally means a mark of royalty. So if you remember, uh, if you've seen a movie with a king where he has his ring of power, he's got a power that, that he uses as a signet ring to seal letters and important papers, that is a mark of authority. Typically, the, the chief steward of the king will have a similar ring to be able to have the power to make decisions for the kingdom. Okay, this is what that word means. Okay, when we choose to be living sacrifices, we bear the mark of Christ. That's what this word means, the crown of life. Now, there's some confusion some people read this and they think that, that this is talking about eschatology, the end of the world, okay? The, the, the After we're in heaven and we've been judged, crown of life is a reward. Now, Scripture does talk about us getting a reward when we're in heaven. That's not what James is talking about here. He's talking about we are blessed because we carry the mark of Christ. See, when we live transformed lives and we have the proper wisdom, the proper perspective, we begin to set ourselves apart as God lifts us up. That humble person, as he lifts them up to be seen by the world, the thing that makes us so attractive is that we bear God's likeness. Not just in our, in our creation, in, in, our, in our body, but we bear his likeness in the culture of our spirit. Because people see us as pure and right and holy. When we choose to be living sacrifices, when we stay on the altar... God begins to do something in us to set us apart. Okay, that means that that people are going to be attracted to that life. There's going to be people that are going to seek us out and they're going to want to know what is so different about you. Okay, what's interesting here is that this word blessed. Okay, so it says blessed in uh, in verse 12. The very first word is blessed. Okay, underline that word in your Bible. And this is important. Okay, so if if you don't have a cross reference in your Bible, there's one that you can write down here. It's Matthew Five. Okay, Matthew 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus lists the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the... Uh, he goes on and on and on. Okay, so this is the same Greek word as that. And it literally means happy. Happy. In other words, satisfied. You are content. So not only, so when, when, we, when we hear people quote James chapter 1 and they say, oh, I've got, to, I've got to, you know, count it all joy when I experience trials, that doesn't just mean that we walk around with a plastic smile on our faces and we say, oh, God, thank you so much for making my life terrible. I'm having so much fun. That's not what that means at all. It means that, that this whole process of learning how to see God 
in these in these trials in these situations actually it 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 makes us confident that God is with us and since we know that he's with us since we have the right perspective and we have this crown of life and he's lifting us up all of these things lead to satisfaction they lead to happiness true happiness the thing that people the things that people are chasing so desperately in our culture this is what it means to be happy in God's eyes is to be someone that bears his mark. Blessed is the man who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. There is a guaranteed formula for joy. There is a guaranteed formula for satisfaction. There is a guaranteed formula for happiness in God's word. And that is one, it has one rule. You sacrifice yourself. Romans 12 I stay on the altar, and in the process, God begins to change my mind. And as, I, as He changes my mind, He changes my perspective, and I know His will because I, I know who He is. And that confidence builds more confidence. God promises that we will have life if we, if we ask for these things. Okay, Transformations aren't just dark, terrible places that we have to just grin and bear it. This is something, if we can learn this process... If we can learn to trust who God is and how he, is, how he has designed this to work, what that means is that we will find true satisfaction. So the opposite of that, of that life, of that hope, of that happiness, that joy, is separate. If God contains all of those things, then separate from that, being separate from that means that we, we will actually have everything on the opposite end of the spectrum. Look at what he, how he continues in verses 13 through 18. He says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dearly brother, my dear brothers, and sisters, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, so the opposite of life is death. Okay, based on this scripture right here, if anyone ever tells you that they that, that God is responsible for their sinful choices and those consequences, I want you to point them to this scripture. If they say, why does God let bad things happen to good people? In other words, why is God at fault for making all this terrible stuff in the world? The truth is that he's not. He is not because this right here says that God is good. It says that anybody who's tempted by sin, they're tempted because of their own evil desires. That back and forth that we have, that sinful desires before anyone, before someone comes to know Jesus, before they have tasted righteousness, all that they know is evil. It's all that they know. So if you think about this whole idea of the knowledge of good and evil, if someone is corrupted in their mind and they have no concept of the truth, they will blame everything on someone else because they want to get away from their own accountability. So God gets blamed for a lot of stuff that he has nothing to do with. They, they, they say, well, God's the one that tempted me. He did this. God's the one that didn't made me do this. Now, we always have a choice to give God control over our lives, or not. Okay, Even in the Garden of Eden, God gave us that choice. But what a person is saying 
is that they, they don't know God. If someone said something that you knew wasn't true about your mom or dad, would you set them straight? If I was to go, like say for instance, if I was to go to, uh, to Christian or any of you, and I was to say something insulting about your parent that wasn't true, I don't, I did, I don't particularly know, know your parents. I don't know Christian's parents very well. I don't know his dad or his mom. I've met his mom a couple of times. But if I was to say something about her like I knew her closely that was offensive and untrue, chances are Christian would set me straight. So I want to, I want to challenge you in this. I want to challenge you in this. If someone says something about God, why would I don't understand why God would make this coronavirus happen. Clearly he's not truly God. Or, or they start, start blaming him for the consequences of their own lives. I want you to look at this scripture and say that's not true. It's not true because God's word says it's not true. If people say things about God that aren't true, don't you want them to see him correctly? It says God can't be tempted with evil. He has no interest in it. Zero. What that means is that the closer that we get to him, the less sin has an appeal for us. Okay, God, he, he, not only does he, he's not tempted by evil, doesn't he, doesn't, not does he tempt people, but he's not tempted with it himself. Okay, God will never use evil as a means for his will. He won't. God is not going to say, hey, I want you to go and I want you to go get drunk with your friends because you're going to be a testimony to them. He's not going to do that. God's not going to tell you, hey, go sleep with your girlfriend or your boyfriend because they really, you know, they, they have, you're a great uh, minister to them. Really, one day God's going to use you to give them, to show them the light of Jesus. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. There is nothing about it that God will use. Never. Never, 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 never. Okay, God cannot be tempted with evil and neither does he tempt anyone. It says that clearly in black and white. Okay, what this means is that you will never have to compromise what is right to be obedient. Never. God will never ask you to do something sinful for his cause. Ever. Now, honoring your parents, using evangelism as an excuse for sinful behavior, all of these things... Are, are, are lies from, they're traps from the enemy. Okay, using, these are the hard parts of, of walking in today's culture. How do you honor your parents when you become an adult and you see that they don't have a perfect marriage? How do you minister to your lost friends that you know won't listen to you when you talk about Jesus, but if you hang out with them, maybe you'll be able to get a couple of words in to talk about him while they're drinking. These are hard choices. But the truth is that God will never ask you to do something sinful like dishonoring your parents to make a point, like compromising your values to, to, to speak Jesus to somebody, which won't happen. The natural consequence of sin is death. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, that same desire that comes from that person, not from God, then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. See, just like a fish out of water, we begin to die when we're separated from God, okay? When we take control. 
Sin starts with evil desires. I've said this before, and it is so true. Sin is not about what you do. Sin is about control. Notice what it says. It says that sin starts with evil desires, and then after desire, it gives birth to sin. Sin isn't in the desire. When you're tempted, that's not sin. When you're tempted, it's not sin. It's when you dwell on the temptation, when you play around with it in your mind, you begin to to think about it, and you kind of sit there and you massage it a little bit. You know that that is that does sound kind of that does sound kind of fun. I I think you know, sure. I I had my quiet time this morning, but you know this little compromise it's not going to be a big deal. You know I this this is going to be fine. Sin is born when we don't deal with the desires. That's why Scripture says that when we're tempted, we should ask for God to provide a way of escape, and He will. Good things don't just come from God. Life comes from God. Look at verses 16 and 18 through 18. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, remember, we're elevated. Verse 9, we're elevated because we are the first fruits of God's kingdom. We are his light to the dark world. What that means is if you, if you, so the, the trees are budding. Okay? We, we, we just, we're in, this, we're in the middle of spring. Summer's about to start. If you look at, a, at an apple tree before it bears fruit, what's on there first? Buds. Flowers. That's the first signs of fruit. That is what you are to this world. You are the one. You are the first fruits. You are. Jesus hasn't come back yet. He hasn't fully. Uh, he hasn't fully called his his creation to himself, and so we are those flowers. We are the buds on the tree. We're the first fruits. That's what he says. That we've been elevated so that we can so that people can see. Oh wait, something really good is coming. If these Christians, these people who are chasing Jesus, who are who are sacrifices living sacrifices in their kind they have they're 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 kind they're joyful they have peace they're patient all of these things are fruit they're fruit of the spirit that come out of us into the world what that means is that that life that comes from Christ that life that comes from a transformed mind it means waiting to listen before we act look at this in verses 19 and 20. 19 and 20 says this. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Think about this for a minute. If we pause for a minute, we're going th- when we're going through a trial, and we ask for wisdom, we ask for God to show us what we can't see, He's faithful to answer that prayer. If, if we have faith and if we don't try to figure it out ourselves, if we truly wait to listen, what happens is he begins to teach us humility. And in the process of teaching us that humility, as we become humble, he raises us up as an example to the world. Okay, And in that, we bear his mark. We are his first fruits. We have the crown of life. We are blessed. We are happy. But in the process of those things, we've got to make sure that we don't lose sight of whose image we bear. He says, in the process of these trials, 
understand that everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. He says, wait a minute, just pause. Because our human reaction, look at verse 20, for our human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Having God's perspective means that, that, we, that as we face these trials, we see them for what they really are. For a mature, transformed, sacrificial follower of Jesus, we don't blame God for the sin in our lives, but instead we joyfully embrace the truth that he contrasts the darkness of the world by using us as a beacon to show a dying world that there's a life in him. See, for, for those of us who are living sacrifices, God is using us. He's using us like this to bring the ultimate joy and satisfaction to our lives. The great truth of God's perspective is that those who want to live must die. Remember, being a living sacrifice. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you gotta, it's going to cost you your life. If we want anything good in our lives, there is only one place that we will find that. And that's at the throne of Jesus. And at the throne of Jesus, there is an altar. And the cost to be in the throne room of Jesus is your life. Everything. So as you're going through these trials, I want to encourage you that this isn't just something that we grin and bear. This isn't something that we artificially say that we're counting it all joy. We pray for earnest perspective. We pray for real vision. And in the process, he gives us wisdom. And he brings us life. But the last thing, though, is it's not just about self-reflection. It's not just about sitting there and thinking about, okay, this is what God wants me to do. We have to be a person of action. Okay, the third thing I want you to see is that trials bring action. This isn't just theoretical. Look at what happens in verses uh, 21 through 27. It says this in, in, verses, uh, in verse 21. Therefore, okay, remember, anytime you see therefore, you got to see what is it there for. Everything that we talked about before. Because of all of that, all those previous points, therefore, because of those things, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of a person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of works. This person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So let's pause for a second. The therefore. The therefore in verse 21. He says, therefore. Okay, so what's he talking about? Look at verse 18. Therefore, because, because we are this first fruit, because we are a light shining to the world, because of all of these things, God's lifting us up and it is an example, we should reject the death-filled life of sin and embrace with humility the direction of God's word. Look at verse 21. He says, Rid yourself of all moral filth and in the evil that is so prevalent. Humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Okay, so going back to, to perspective here, how do we pray for wisdom? Does God just beam that into our head and then all of a sudden we know what we're, what's, what's, what we're supposed to do? No, he's given us a tool. The tool is God's word. Okay, so, so I want you to think about it in this way. So 
um, he uses the perspective here, an analogy of someone who, who uh, they open up God's word and they see themselves for what they really are. And in the process of doing that, it's like, it's like when you get up in the morning, right? And you, you walk into the bathroom, you just woke up, look at yourself in the mirror, your hair's a mess, your face looks like death, and you need to brush your teeth like you are a mess. Okay, you look at yourself in the mirror, and using James's analogy, you walk away and you immediately forget what you look like. That's what it is for us to look at God's Word. We read God's Word and we, we read things like God is pure and He is truth and He is good and nothing is bad. The bad comes from Him. We see how great He is and how wonderful He is. And in contrast, we see ourselves and we realize, wow, I am broken. I am a mess. I am an absolute disaster. But what James is saying here is that that's only the first piece. When we when we see ourselves, when we have those God goggles, we're like, oh my goodness, I need to fi- I need to fix this. We need to go into action. He says, he says, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. In other words, to read your Bible and not put it into practice, you are deceiving yourself. You're poisoning your own perception. Verse 23, because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of a person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of good works, this person will be blessed in what he does. There's that word again, blessed. Blessed. The same thing, again and again and again. The same word, blessed. See, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. You guys probably already know this, but um, I'm going to say it anyway, right? So knowledge is the is the collection of information. Okay, knowledge is a collection of information. So there's a lot of smart people that have a lot of knowledge, um, but they don't actually put it into practice. They say those who don't do teach. Okay? Uh, I realize the irony of me teaching. Uh, those who don't do teach. Knowledge is the collection of information, but then you have wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge in action. Wisdom is knowledge in action. Okay, so when we ask for wisdom, we're asking for marching orders, not for information. When we pray, God, give me wisdom, God, give me understanding, give me the right perception here, I am not asking just for information. James says you are asking for guidance to, for what to do. When God tells you to do something, you do it. It's like my mom used to tell me, delayed obedience is disobedience. You don't, you don't mess around with this. That's why we have to go to God's word to find out what he wants to say because everything that we need to know about him is here. Now, when he says this, that everyone's blessed in what he does, that connects back to verse 12, that we, that we have life. Remember, we bear his mark. So a person who is living according to God's word, if you want to be this person who is joyful, who is happy, who understands what God is doing, who wants to, who's a living sacrifice and knows God's will, you cannot do that separate from God's word. You can't do it. If you believe that you can mail in your faith and you can go to church on Sunday and you're fine with hearing the message, you write down some notes that kind of provoke you and you think, okay, well, that's some critical thought I can think about. That's, that's intellectually stimulating. And you don't spend time in God's word yourself. You are missing the point. You cannot live a holy life without God's word. You can't do it. It's impossible. You will not be able to count on joy when you experience trials. 
you will not be able to be happy. You will not have the crown of life. You will not have the marking that you belong to Jesus. You will be constantly quick to speak, quick to anger, and, and quick to judge other people. But remember what he said earlier. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. You see, he gave us only one offensive weapon. So we can't endure temptation without God's word. But, but verse 25 says that the one that, who intently looks at the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. I want you to think about this analogy, okay? In, in Ephesians, it talks about the armor of God. We have the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the, the shoes shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the belt of truth, and you have the sword of the Spirit, sharper than any two-edged blade. That's God's Word. Okay, these verses, they paint an image of a person who is, who is carrying divine equipment. The only thing in that arsenal that's offensive is the sword. Okay, armor, it won't cause the enemy to retreat. Have you noticed that? You can have all the armor in the world, but the, but the enemy is just going to keep coming until they finally work their way through the armor. But a weapon. A weapon will cause the enemy to retreat because it can do damage to them. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, do you guys remember this? We talked about this last or two weeks ago. How did he defend himself? With scripture, right? Your, your Bible, your knowledge of the Bible is the only offensive weapon that you have. Okay, these demons, they know. They know God's word and they will twist it just like Satan did with Jesus. That's why you have to know how to use the weapon yourself. Okay, you can't just go into battle and not have any have spent any time with your sword. You don't even know how to pull it out. And for some of you, you should have a broadsword, but instead you have a little dagger. And you barely even know how to get it out of your belt. Train in God's word. Dedicate yourself to this book. Because with it comes true freedom. The last thing I want you to see here is that religion, it's not about knowledge. Okay, remember, knowledge is the accumulating information. There's a lot of people that know a lot of stuff about God's word. There are. There are PhDs who know a lot about God's word and they are absolute idiots. But there are others. These little old ladies, these little old men who have spent their whole lives not accumulating knowledge, but accumulating wisdom. This is real, battle-tested, true words with action because they've spent time in God's word. Religion is not about knowledge. It's about action. Look at verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless, and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He paints a picture here of, of a type of person. Okay, That type of person is full of information. They love to run their mouth and spout opinions, but they're only spectators. They don't actually know what they're doing they they are they they know children of god they they are known as children of god but they don't actually put anything into action they're actually just curators of information they're databanks hey so and so 
what was the battle that this Old Testament general fought on this day against these people? And they spout off an answer. And then you ask them, what's the spiritual application to what happened in that story? And they won't be able to tell you. Because they're full of knowledge, not wisdom. There's a difference between the two. James says that pure religion is actually taking care of people. What's interesting is that he points to what his audience would have recognized as the two greatest commandments. Love God and love people. Now, the first of James chapter 1, we didn't really go through this, but James says who he's writing to. So remember, he's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. So he is, for the Jews who are scattered around the world, Jerusalem is the center of their religion. So to be the pastor of the church in Jerusalem is a significant thing for the Jewish communities around the world. So when James writes to all of the tribes, the 12 tribes that are dispersed around the world, he's writing them from a place of Jewish authority. Okay, So when he says pure religion is not to keep all of the aspects of the law, pure religion is to love God and love people. A person who has the perspective of God is one who will have the priorities of God. They're going to put people first. Okay, This is not just saying that we should take care of the physical needs of people, though. James is saying that, that to be a child of God is to be a person of action all the time. Here's the kicker, though. Think about the context of this verse, these verses. He's talking about being this type of person during a trial. That means that your job to love God and love people is not just isolated to the times when you feel good about who you are. When you feel safe and secure, you're in a, in a decent season of life. When you feel great about who God is and what he's teaching you, all these things. In spite of our trials, we're supposed to be the people that take care of others. In spite of our trials, we're, we're the ones who are supposed to be happy because God is showing us truth. He is, he is allowing us to participate in his creation. In spite of our trials, we are lifted up because we're humble. In spite of our trials, we see God move in incredible ways. In spite of our trials, we have life because God is life. And in spite of our trials, we dig deep in God's word because in it is truth and is life and is action. The very words written in this book are the ones that can save your souls. And I'm not talking about just salvation. I'm talking about opening your eyes to see the true realities of the world. So we're talking about transformation this year. And you can see that as we go through trials, transformation is happening in the midst of trials. The first step in that transformation is the introduction of a trial. It's a simple process. God allows the destruction of a proud, sinful world to affect us. Okay, then as we joyfully look forward to the opportunity to learn and allow God to change us, we pray for wisdom and he brings us perspective. And we step forward in faith, trusting in the reliability of his word and the memories of what he's done in our past. We, are, we aren't meant to do this academically, but in real, tangible life. Being a living sacrifice requires dedication to God's word. It's the primary way he teaches us. Not just, not just information, but what to do in a trial when we step forward in faith. We can't expect to see any change in our lives without it. It is central to who we are. So I want to challenge you in these things. Okay, this is, this is my ask for you. If you aren't going through a trial right now, 
get ready because it's coming. If you're not going through a difficulty, it's around the corner. How do I know that? How can I say that with, with uh, certainty? Because God's word says that we will have trouble. Okay? If you're in the middle of a trial, I want to encourage you to pray for wisdom. And dedicate yourself to God's word. Don't miss that second step. If you don't know how to read God's word, I'm happy to help. Roya is happy to help. I want you to, to know how to find the truth. Okay? Pray for wisdom and dedicate yourself to God's word. You need to be having a quiet time. Don't be double-minded. Don't rely on yourself. Don't say, oh God, please help me. Help me figure this out. And then as soon as you say amen, you go to try to fix it yourself. Do not do that. Because you're going to get into a world of hurt and you're going to make it even worse. Or, if you're in a trial right now and God has given you instruction from his word, I want to encourage you to put it into action. Don't just play around with it. Don't say, okay, great, God gave me an answer. Close your journal and go about your business. Ain't nobody got time for that. Do what he said, when he said it. Delayed obedience is disobedience. If you want the trial to be over and you want to learn and move on to something else, something bigger, just obey. If or say you're on the backside of a trial and you you've given uh, you've given everything you have and God's shown you incredible things, you have received a gift from God. That lesson that you learned in that trial is a gift, and you need to share it and encourage other people. Do not be afraid of what God is doing in your life because He has given you an incredible gift to participate in this world with Him and what He's doing. James paints a picture here of a living sacrifice. Someone who sees things from God's perspective, who knows God's will because they have learned to joyfully lay themselves on the altar. I want to encourage you. I know many of you are going through challenges right now. I want to encourage you that as you face these challenges, that you embrace them and that you purely seek what God wants for you in those trials. Because in the end, He is going to lift you up. He is going to put a seal on you and He is going to teach you incredible things about who He is. What's up, everybody? This is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday evening at 6.30 at Evergreen Church, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. For more information, check out our website, reachtulsa.org. You can connect with us on social media and on Instagram by searching for reach.tulsa. Also, be sure to subscribe to our content for the latest sermons and updates. You can also find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Bring your glory Bye.